Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hi, I'm Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast. If you're a true crime addict like I am, then my show is for you. I'll peel back the curtain and give you a glimpse into the life and crimes of some of the most demented minds. Check out the episode Broken Bonds and listen to a brother reveal a deeply held secret. Or hear about the day that the heavy metal community will never forget in the episode Dimebag. These episodes are just a sample of our catalog, so you have plenty to binge. Just search for True Crime Fan Club Podcast and any podcatcher. You won't want to miss an episode. You are listening to the Already Gone Podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. Today we have three stories, three cases of young women who were taken before their time, three women whose remains were discovered in rural areas, women who were murdered in a show of power and cruelty, not for money or revenge, but because someone saw an opportunity and they took it. Come with me to September 1981, when Anne Doragazi lived and worked at Camp Dearborn a location that may be familiar to you if you grew up in the Detroit area. Our other victims, the ones that come later, they're still in high school at this point. Teenage girls doing what teenage girls do, dreaming of a future and of happiness that they won't have time to meet. Camp Dearborn is an interesting place with an interesting history. And for that, we return to 1948 when Dearborn Mayor Orville Hubbard purchased the lakefront and riverfront property in Milford as a recreation area to be used by those who live in the city of Dearborn. In the last 70 years, the property has changed and improved. There is still access to the Huron River for canoes and kayaks. Now there are cabins, places to park your RV or camper, bike trails which lead you through the park to the charming city of Milford and its inviting downtown. A golf course, hiking trails, and a swimming pool round out the recreational offerings. The people I've spoken to who have been to Camp Dearborn, either for a week or a weekend, describe it as wholesome fun. Camp Dearborn is an up-north-style getaway just 38 miles northwest of Dearborn. Today, that's a 30-minute drive using the freeways. But back in the 50s and 60s, I imagine that trip took a couple of hours. In 1981, 20-year-old Anne Marie Doragazi lived and worked at Camp Dearborn. She was part of a maintenance crew. Anne didn't have a vehicle, so if she needed cigarettes or a snack or a soda, she'd leave the campus, walking to the fuel station and convenience store down the road from the camp entrance. Doragazi's friends and co-workers would later tell police that this was the last time they saw her. Dressed in jeans, a patterned shirt, and a windbreaker, 
she set off on foot for the gas station up the road. This was about 11 p.m. on Saturday, September 26, 1981. Her boyfriend, who also worked at Camp Dearborn, reported Anne missing on Monday the 28th. He hadn't seen or heard from her, nor had she returned to her camp trailer. The partially dressed body of Anne Doragazi was discovered on Tuesday, September 29th. The coroner ruled her death a homicide, the cause of death, strangulation. Robbery was ruled out because Anne's purse, which still contained cash, was located nearby. Reports came in that Anne was seen in a car with a couple of co-workers, including a man who, at the time, was in his mid-twenties. An article in the Milford Times newspaper featured an interview with Milford Police Lieutenant Dale Mallett. Mallett reveals that Anne's body was dumped in a ditch, making it easy to find. He does not believe that she was in that ditch all weekend. Mallett theorized that her body was left there because whoever killed her wanted her to be found. He thinks that maybe Anne was picked up while walking to the gas station, likely by a co-worker, someone she knew, someone she trusted. Police searched the vehicles and campers of her co-workers, but found nothing tying them to her death. In 1990, nine years after her murder, the case went before a grand jury, but the evidence on hand was not enough to move the case forward. Years later, the man that Milford police thought could be responsible, well, he moved out of state. Mallet kept an eye out for him, but eventually, Lieutenant Mallet retired. If I had to guess, he never forgot about Anne-Marie Doragazi. Her murder remains unsolved, her story limited to a few mentions in the newspaper, and a feature on the cold case page of the Milford Police Department. Her case is one of two on the page. The department remains hopeful that someone knows what happened, and that someone is ready to tell the whole story. I will post a link to the Milford Police cold case page on our website. There, you will find a case summary and a photo of Anne-Marie Doragazi. In the spring of 1982, there was another victim, another young woman, her body discarded, but this time, the killer was more careful, more methodical in his disposal of her. This is the case of 16-year-old Kimberly Loisel. Kim is slender and pretty, with a wide smile and luscious dark hair that flows past her shoulders. She was the daughter of William and Joanna Loisel, the third of four children. Kim had just turned 16 on March 3rd, and much to the frustration of her parents, she used this occasion to drop out of South Lyon High School, where she was a sophomore. On March 19th, Kim asks her mother if she could make the 25-mile or 40-kilometer trip east to Redford. She wanted to spend some time with her boyfriend, Bob. Her mother tells her, no, this is not a good idea. Kim, being a strong-willed teenage girl, is not happy with this answer. When Joanna leaves for work, Kim sets out. She already had a ride lined up to take her to see her boyfriend. When she arrives at his house, Kim intends to stay for a couple of days. Bob's place is in Redford. It's off of Six Mile Road. Now, this wasn't actually Bob's house. His family is staying there temporarily in preparation for a move, so Bob and his younger brother, Mike, are living with their cousin Rick and Rick's family. 
Bob and Mike are both old enough to drive, but neither of them have a car. If they wanted to get somewhere, they relied on rec for transportation. Complicating things is the fact that Bob and Kim, as a couple, they are not in a good place right now. Kim's move put a strain on the relationship, and since neither of them have a car, being together gets complicated. With her family's recent move to South Lyon, they now live more than 20 miles apart. He wants to see other girls, girls that live nearby and can see him more than once in a while. Kim is not happy about the breakup, but she relents. And on Saturday morning, Kim places a call to her home to let her parents know where she is. Her parents are not happy, and they tell her that she needs to come home. That day, on Saturday, it's time to come home. Since Bob has to go to work Saturday afternoon, it seems like the right time for her to leave. Around 1.30, Bob heads out to work to make the start of his 2 p.m. shift. Kim walks down the road to Six Mile with his brother Mike, and Mike waits with her while she puts out her thumb looking for a ride. Kim intended to hitch her way home. When a car slows to pick her up, Mike makes a note of the license plate number and waves goodbye. I know what you're thinking. Aha! This must be the bad guy in our story. Well, not necessarily. Mike made a note of the car's license plate. When the driver is later approached by police, he tells police that he took Kim to around 8 Mile Road at Merriman, leaving her on the north or westbound side of the road. This is Farmington Hills, Oakland County. She's now four or five miles closer to her home. If she can get a ride from someone headed west on 8 Mile, they might leave her just a short walk from her family home on Lisa Laurie Lane which intersects with 8 Mile and is just a mile or so west of Pontiac Trail, again, if you're familiar with the streets in the area. Even now, this area is pretty rural, and 35 years ago, I imagine it was a country-like setting. Now, I've heard that once Kim was dropped off near 8 Mile in Merriman, she used a payphone to place several calls. Maybe she was calling friends hoping to get a ride home. And this isn't the first time that Kim hitched a ride to or from Bob's house. Mike noting the license plate of the vehicle that picked her up? Now, I agree. In 2018, that seems strange. But it wasn't an uncommon practice. A safeguard, if you will, back when hitchhiking was a regular thing. There is a witness who can validate the driver's story. Apparently, a female acquaintance of the Loisel family was driving by, and she spotted Kim on 8 Mile Road. When I heard this, my first question was, well, why didn't she pick her up? Apparently, this person was on their way to an appointment, and they didn't want to be late, so she didn't stop. I can't tell you that these persons were eliminated as suspects, but I can verify that their stories were checked out by law enforcement at the time. The female acquaintance of the family, the one who saw Kim that afternoon along 8 Mile, this was the last known sighting of Kimberly Loisel, around 6.30 p.m. on March 20th, 1982. The next day, Sunday the 21st, Kim's parents file a missing persons report. She hasn't made it home. She's not at Rick's house with her boyfriend. Kim Loisel wasn't anywhere.
On Wednesday, April 14th, a married couple driving with their dog pulled into what I believe is a park-and-ride lot off of Interstate 96, adjacent to the Island Lake Recreation Area. Wanting to give the dog some exercise and a potty break, they walk through the parking area headed into the woods toward the river. When they reach the river, they follow it, heading west for several hundred feet. They came to a footpath, and the husband turned to look up the path when he spotted Kim's body off to one side. It was then that he sent his wife back, so she wouldn't see what he'd discovered, and the pair took their dog, headed for the park office to report their grim find. The park manager, John O'Dell, and a park ranger, Greg Olson, arrive at the location at 2.25 p.m. They're waiting for police and the crime lab to respond. One of the officers recorded the license plate numbers of the more than a dozen vehicles parked in the lot nearest her remains. Among the investigators looking for evidence in the park that afternoon were four officers from Michigan State Police, three representatives from the Department of Natural Resources representing the Island Lake Recreation Area, and two members of the Kensington Metro Park Police Department. If you aren't familiar with this area, Island Lake Recreation Area and the Kensington Metro Park are across Interstate 96 from one another, and the two parks share access to Kent Lake. These are big parks. When I say park, I'm talking thousands of acres. Many of these acres are wooded. In fact, Island Lake Recreation Area is a balloon launch site. So it's a great big park, and people like to congregate in that area over the summer because balloons are taking off, and it's also a great spot to watch the fireworks. But I digress. There is a nine-man team scouring the area looking for clues, but they didn't find anything of value during their search. Detective Lieutenant Lynn Knuth, he was brought in that day, and he assembled a team of state troopers, members of the Livingston County Sheriff's Department, and an officer from Green Oak Township Police to work the case. Medical examiner David Micah, he responded to the park that afternoon, along with three technicians from the Michigan State Police Crime Lab in Northville. When her body was found, the nearby Green Oak Township Police Department heard radio chatter about the body being found, and Chief James Boylan He hopped in a squad car and responded to the scene with one of his officers. He was there to offer support and advise them that he had a missing teenage girl. He offered them a snapshot of Kim, but no determination could be made if the remains in the woods were that of Kimberly Loisel. After a discussion by the police team assembled, they took Polaroids of the victim's face, and an officer was sent to the Loisel home with the pictures. And I need to pause here because this is so hard. This officer is going to ask Kim's mother to look at the decomposed face of a murder victim to determine if it could be her daughter, her fierce, beautiful, dark-haired girl. Is this her, ma'am? Is this your daughter, Kim? When presented with the photos, Joanna Loisel agrees that yes, it is Kim. And the next day, April 15th, Kim's parents would make a second identification at Sparrow Hospital in Lansing, confirming that the body found at the Island Lake Recreation Area was indeed that of their missing child. 
Michigan State Police Detective Lieutenant Lynn Knuth was quoted in the paper saying that Kim had been dead four to six days when she was found. Kim's body was discovered April 14th. That's more than three weeks after she disappeared from Eight Mile Road near Merriman. Where was she those other days? And who was she with? Who took Kim Loisel? Kim's remains are transported north to Sparrow Hospital in Lansing for autopsy. The coroner said that she'd been beaten, sexually assaulted, and strangled. Her body left in the woods inside the Island Lake Recreation Area less than a week before she was found. And living in Michigan, I have a lot of questions about the weather that week, because this week, in February, it's going to be 50 degrees. So, was this a warm week in early April, or was it another snowy spring in Michigan? I also cannot help but wonder if a coroner with today's tools and technology would come to a different conclusion, that she was possibly left in the park longer than originally thought. Kim was a high school dropout, and before she left school, she wasn't the best student, nor did she have a solid attendance record. Kim was strong-willed, and she often clashed with her parents. She was known to hitchhike and to take off from home. But Kim was a loving sister. She was close with her older sister Kathy and her younger sister Cindy. And even when she took off, even when she wasn't getting along with her parents, she cared about her family, and she checked in with them, letting them know where she was and when she would be back. Looking at her over nearly 40 years, it's easy to think about what could have been, what Kim should or should not have done. She was 16 years old, which is so impossibly young. If she'd had more time, what could her life have been? If the right person had offered her a ride home on that dark spring night when she fed dimes into a payphone, hoping someone would help her out and give her a lift back home. Anne-Marie Dorigazzi was a tall, athletic blonde, five foot nine and sporty, and she was an adult at 20 years of age, and she was likely murdered by someone that she knew. Kim Loisel was a slight brunette, just 16 years old, engaged in hitchhiking, which put her in unsafe situations at each turn, and their bodies were discovered just seven months and seven miles apart. It was 6.30 p.m. at 8 Mile in Merriman where she was last seen. Um, and then we believe that she was possibly wearing a white waist-length um, artificial fur-type jacket and blue jeans um, when she was last seen at that location. Um, then from March 20th till April 14th, we have no idea about Kim's whereabouts in between that time frame. The gentleman and his wife were walking their dog from the parking lot at Grand River and Kensington in Livingston County into the state rec area there, and then the male had discovered her body. I would just like to say that this is still an open investigation. Um, we follow up on any and all leads we receive. Kimberly went missing on March 20th of 1982 at 8 Mile in Merriman, and then she was found deceased on April 14th of 1982. We're hoping to get some more information about where she was, who she was with between that time frame. As new investigative techniques and forensic abilities become available, we hope to use those abilities to further this investigation. Um, I ask that anyone with information call the Brighton Post at 810-227-1051 and ask for myself, Detective Sergeant Hunt.
Our third and final case has a rather startling coincidence. Actually, this case has several of them. We began with the September 1981 disappearance and death of Anne-Marie Doragazi. Then we jump forward to the March 21, 1982 disappearance and murder of Kimberly Loisel. Well, it's springtime in Michigan once again, and we are back in Redford, at the home of 19-year-old Christina Castiglione. Her home was less than two miles from the Redford location that Kim Loisel departed from in March of 1982. Christy, as she was known to friends and family, was a 1982 graduate of Redford Union High School, and she lived with her parents on MacArthur Street. After graduation, she landed a clerical position with Detroit Edison. The morning of Saturday, March 19, 1983, Christina and her boyfriend, Christopher Lindsay of Northwest Detroit, spent the morning running errands for her mother. With the errands complete, the two parted ways. Christopher headed out with friends, and Christy returned home for a nap. She woke up late afternoon and got dressed, ready for Saturday night. She called Lindsay's house, but he wasn't there, so she headed out on foot. Christy had recently sold her car, a red Mustang, because the insurance costs were more than she could afford. Her first stop was his sister's house, but she hadn't seen him. Then Christy went to a friend's house to watch television. She soon tired of that and headed for home. It was approximately 7.30 p.m. when Lindsay spotted her walking down Five Mile Road. He was out with friends and would tell law enforcement that Christy didn't approve of these friends, so he didn't ask them to stop and pick her up. A couple of hundred yards down the road, they turned into the parking lot of a party store. His friends wanted to buy some beer. Christopher started walking back up the road toward where he'd seen Christy just a few minutes earlier, but there was no sign of her and she wasn't in any of the cars that drove past. Christy was just gone. I should mention here that just like Kim Loisel and her boyfriend Bob, neither Christy nor Christopher have a car, and it wasn't unheard of for her to put out her thumb and hitch a ride. When he'd spotted her walking down the road, she was wearing a waist-length burgundy jacket over a gray sweatshirt and jeans. She'd pulled up her hood to ward off the light rain that was falling. When Christopher returned home, he called Christy's house, but her parents told him that she was out. He didn't say anything to them about seeing her walking up the road. He would tell police that he didn't want to worry them. Christina's mother, Beatrice, she called Redford Township Police around noon on Sunday to report her daughter was missing. Chrissy was the youngest daughter of Beatrice and Cristoforo Castiglione. It seemed like she had just vanished into thin air, and for ten days police kept an eye out for the missing woman. But it wasn't until days later when a call came in to the Livingston County Sheriff's Office. Human remains discovered in rural Cohocta Township. Now, we're going to take a little sidetrack here. Cohocta Township is in the north-central part of Livingston County. It is a tiny community located northeast of Fowlerville. And from the 1960s through the 1980s, Cohocta Township was home to Robert Miles, who was the Grand Dragon of Michigan's Ku Klux Klan. 
Miles Farm regularly hosted meetings, cross burnings, and rallies. Miles died back in 1992, but he and his activities, they left a stain on the community. And even today, 25 years later, people still whisper about the Klan activity in the area. It's not thought that Miles or any of his followers were involved in the murder of Castiglione, nor is it thought that there is Klan activity going on in that area today. Christie's body was partially nude and still covered with snow from a storm that came through the area on Sunday, March 20th. There's something I need to clarify about this snowstorm. It happened overnight between Saturday the 19th and Sunday the 20th. Even if the alarm had been raised that night about her disappearance, it was too late. Whoever killed Christie, they already had her, and she was likely dead before the snowstorm began, her body left in a wooded area and concealed for days beneath a blanket of snow. And another one of those coincidences? This weekend, Saturday the 19th and Sunday the 20th, it is a year exactly from when Kim disappeared from Eight Mile Road after being in Redford. The man who discovered Christie's body, he said that he was in that area to fish and hunt when he came across her remains. But from what I've read, he didn't have a fishing pole or hunting equipment, and this called his story into question. Police issued polygraphs to those closest to her, including her boyfriend and his friends, and between the polygraph and verifying alibis, it seemed unlikely that they were involved. The man who found her remains, we'll call him Ron, I've heard that he refused to take a polygraph. But eventually, science caught up with her case, and DNA was extracted from biological materials left at the scene. In 2010, the Livingston County Cold Case Squad was able to officially clear Ron, the man that discovered her remains, as well as clearing her boyfriend. That DNA profile is in CODIS, and it's just waiting for a hit. It's also been run against anyone who was known to be a serial killer or a frequent sex offender whose DNA was on file. Like the cases of Anne-Marie Doragazzi and Kim Loisel, the case of Christina Castiglione remains open and unsolved. In 2013, the Livingston County Sheriff's Department put up billboards along Interstate 96 to bring attention to the cases of these three women, Paige Renkowski, Christina Castiglione, and Kimberly Loisel. Renkowski, who's probably Michigan's most famous missing person after Jimmy Hoffa, she disappeared on May 24, 1990, her vehicle was found near the Fowlerville exit. The car was abandoned, but still running. Renkowski's purse and shoes remained inside the vehicle. And while these cases are nearly a decade apart, there remains a possibility that they are somehow connected. Another case that came up while researching this story was the disappearance of Kelly Marie Brownlee. I covered her case, along with others, back in episode 27, Four Stories. Kelly was last seen at 12 Oaks Mall, which is located just north of Interstate 96 in Novi. So she was last seen a dozen miles east of where Christy and Kim's bodies were found. Kelly, 
Kim and Christy are all dark-haired teens with a history of hitchhiking. Kelly Brownlee was last seen alive in May of 1982, and there has been no sign of her since. Her case is being investigated by the West Bloomfield Police Department. Each of the detectives that I spoke with about these three cases, they all said the same thing. If you know something, even if you have spoken to law enforcement about the case previously, please call. Please share the information again. You could hold the information that brings a case to close. If you have information on the 1983 murder of Christina Castiglione, please contact the Livingston County Sheriff Cold Case Team at 517-540-7880. I need to send thanks to our latest Patreon supporters, Natalie, Dina, Beth, Joy, and Heather. Thank you for supporting Already Gone. If you are interested in supporter-only content, early access to episodes, as well as other great benefits, consider supporting the pod on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash already gone. This week's episode would not have been possible without support from law enforcement. And again, if you have information about these cases, even if you've spoken with law enforcement previously, please make the call. Contact information for the three departments responsible for these three cases is available on my website, www.alreadygonepodcast.com. If you have questions, comments, or feedback, you can email me, host at alreadygonepodcast.com. If you are on Twitter and would like to follow the show, you can find us at alreadygonepod. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. Thank you for listening, and please be safe. <laughs>